This is the Living Prophets Podcast, and I'm your host, Mark Maxmeister. So I took about a four-month hiatus from this podcast, mostly because I was writing a book and needed to finish it, which I haven't quite done yet, sadly, as is four years in, and partly because two of the best sources for my episodes have disappeared. My local church removed the head minister recently, and he was an inspiring person. I don't know the whole story there, but it's sad when someone who inspires you is no longer around. And uh, my other favorite person to listen to in Texas, for some reason, the people at her church are incapable of keeping her feed updated, so I don't have anything from her. And I just haven't found a lot of material to share. Uh, I haven't been looking so much because of writing the book. But I'm back and I'm going to try to keep doing my monthly episodes because I think it helps me as much as it helps anyone who listens. I mean, I do these because I myself need to dig deeper into the messages and apply a spiritual lens to the messages that I'm receiving every day. And if I didn't have this, then I would probably not be so introspective about what it is that I really value and how I want to wake up each morning and orient myself in the world. But I did find a sermon from All Souls Church in Washington, D.C. about stories from the border that had some good vignettes in there from people who are walking the border and experiencing the reality of people who are trying to come into the United States in 2019 and what their world is like, what their fears and hopes and dreams are, and putting a human face on a political issue in the tradition of activism and speaking for the people who have been disenfranchised Denise Woods. One morning we woke early to walk in the desert, following the path that many migrants had taken before. I could not help but feel a sense of foreboding, because I knew that since 1995, more than 7,000 people had died here trying to reach a promised land, thus making this border region the fourth most dangerous in the world. At 9 a.m., the prickly heat surrounded us. On the desert floor, I saw backpacks and water bottles that had been left behind and one high heel shoe. A literal still life of someone's last moments. I couldn't help but wonder about the high heel. Had the human trafficking cartels lied to her and said it would be an easy walk? Or was it her only pair of shoes? But I knew their hopes. 
One woman I read about risked all because the growling of her children's stomachs kept her up at night. I found that it takes migrants seven days to die of thirst and that they travel at night with no light, no light. Consequently, their bodies bounce back and forth as if in an evil ping pong game with cacti with needles long and sharp. Blisters on their feet can literally mean a death sentence. The government assigns 50 border patrol agents per mile, which includes helicopters, which literally fly over the heads of the migrants as a way to scatter them and separate them into confusion and capture. One of them was Mary Cruz. She was walking with a cartel group and fell down a 20-foot precipice that come out of nowhere, broke her ankle. The pain was agony, and her group kicked her out. She was walking too slow. Her shoes were made of discarded tire, already were unwieldy. She continued walking alone for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven days. until she tripped and broke her other ankle. Now she had no way to stand. What could she do? What would you do? She continued. She found a piece of carpet to kneel on and moved it one knee at a time. Then one day she heard a voice. We are Samaritans and we are your friends. We come bringing water. Maricruz had been found and saved by no mas muertos, no more deaths, a humanitarian group which leaves food and water in the desert. In a twisted parable, symbolic of our times, four volunteers who had left water and food in the desert are now being charged and face up to six months in jail. Humanitarian aid is being criminalized. I cannot forget Mary. I went to the border, but the border now lives in me. When I was 16 years old, my mother sent me from my home in Mexico to here, Washington, D.C. I was not, I was not a willing participant. And she made it very clear, you know my mother, that I had no choice in the matter. We were extremely poor, and she wanted me to do something good with my life. So she put me on a plane in April of 1971. I got a job busing tables at a cafeteria, but because I was undocumented, I was terrified of being caught by La Migra. So I left the cafeteria and cleaned houses instead. Supporting my family back home was my goal. I couldn't, get, I couldn't afford to get deported. I've had my share of challenges living in the States, learning a new language, adapting to a new culture, living away from home and my mother, enduring racist comments and years of fear of getting caught by immigration. 
This is what I see in my immigrant sisters and brothers who so desperately want to come to the States. Some of their dreams were my dreams. Their fear is my fear. In spite of being an American citizen since 1986, I was having second, second thoughts about going on this trip. Once I heard that we, could, that we would cross into Nogales, Mexico, I was afraid that I would not be able to let back into the country because of the new administration's policy of naturalized citizens. This trip opened my eyes in many ways. Several immigrant-led organizations told us about their work in Tucson, but one of them left a deep mark in me. That organization is Scholarships AZ, whose vision is that everyone has the right to a college education regardless of one's immigrant status. It is led by mostly students who were brought to the States by their parents at a young age and who are, therefore, undocumented. Because of that status, dreamers no longer qualify for in-state tuition. The in-state tuition they qualified for once was rescinded by the Arizona Supreme Court in 2015. We learn about the challenges they are facing, including having undocumented parents, indifference by their educators, and levels of anxiety among these students are very, very high. One student who was giving a presentation broke down when he told us he lives in constant fear of coming home from school and finding out his parents are gone. This was painful to witness and made me wonder, why should any immigrant live in constant fear? So those are two excellent examples of a narrative that illustrates what it's like to be an immigrant coming to America through the southern border and why someone would do that and what are the risks that they take and the sacrifices they make. But I want to shift now to a different topic because while it's easy for me and maybe you, the listener, to identify with those stories and the people who really want those stories to be heard, there are a lot of people in the world that don't want that. They don't want to hear that story. And so I'm going to shift gears a bit to talking more about what it means to be a conservative or a liberal in America right now and what do conservatives think. A friend of mine had recommended this short YouTube video which tries to explain why conservatives don't see things the way that liberals do. What are the underpinnings of their beliefs? Where do those ideas come from where they wouldn't even understand some of the things that people who just spoke might be talking about as goals and ideals and visions for the world? What do conservatives believe? The United States, like much of the Western world, is a capitalist democracy. Democracy and capitalism seem to coexist easily. Voting doesn't feel like a violation of capitalism. Buying a bagel doesn't feel like a violation of democracy. But sometimes they come into tension with one another. 
and speaking really broadly, when a choice between them has to be made, a liberal is someone who tends to think democratically, and a conservative is someone who tends to think like a capitalist. The operative word here is tend. Liberals are still capitalists, and conservatives still stand for democracy, and the preference for one or the other may be very slight. Nevertheless, which way a person leans reveals their priorities. Part of the project of liberalism has been about making the government more closely resemble its ideology. Freedom, agency, and a hand in the strictures that govern you, everyone is entitled to these things. It's an egalitarian mindset. The capitalist framework, by contrast, is that of businesses and markets, where big fish eat the little ones. If two people start businesses in the same field and one makes more profit than the other, that person can make more investments, open more locations, undercut their competitors' prices. The more money you have, the more money you can make. So advantage compounds, where even small failures often mean getting muscled out of the field. Now, with some creativity, the underdog can still thrive, and this is part of what conservatives like about the market, that it demands this creativity in a live-ammo environment. But most will not beat the odds. That's how odds work. Since there will always be more failures than successes, the general trajectory of unregulated capitalism is money pooling into fewer and fewer hands. Things naturally sort themselves into a hierarchy with sharks at the top, a million minnows at the bottom. Since we live with both of these frameworks in our minds, and most of the things we do in our day-to-day -day lives can be justified by either one, we don't often notice the contradictions between them. And it's easy to imagine whichever one tends to be our default is everyone else's default as well. But issues like poverty, taxation, and education are areas where the contradictions matter, and we are sometimes shocked by how different the world looks to our conservative friends. In conservative thinking, this hierarchy is humanity's natural state. The American dream is here anyone can make it. No matter who you are or what you start with, you can become a billionaire. But a necessary component of this is anyone can, but everyone can't. We're not all going to be billionaires. There's a finite amount of money in this country. For any one person to have so, so much more than they need, there must, mathematically, be thousands of people with less. Your conservative friend is often baffled as to what you're even trying to say when you point out there's not enough high-paying jobs or affordable health plans for everyone. There's not supposed to be. The system requires an underclass. Someone's got to clean the toilets. Capitalism, then, is a proving ground. It's how you demonstrate where in the hierarchy you deserve to be. The field is by no means level, but any disadvantage just means you have to work harder. We know people who start with nothing can win big. If you're a shark, you will make your way to the top because that's where you belong. Anyone complaining about how stacked the deck is against them is making excuses for not being better at the game. So disadvantage itself is not a problem, so long as it's quote-unquote natural. What's necessary is that advantage and disadvantage not be imposed from without. Free tuition, a high minimum wage, taxes on the wealthy, or any other kind of government meddling. These things must be opposed, because with them, people would end up in the wrong places.
a lot of conservative contradictions start to make sense through this lens. So that's a good example of one kind of conservative, and I would label what this guy just talked about as more of an economic libertarian capitalist. But there are other kinds of conservatives that somehow form this loose union, just like they do in other parts of the world where people with differing ideas have to form a coalition in order to have majority power. And those ideas are not the same, but they're less contradictory than the other set of ideas on the other side. And that's where left and right comes from. Another big faction of Trump supporters are social conservatives and identity politics people. So someone whose politics are based on identity might endorse building a southern border wall and strengthening the boundaries in the, in the, along the border, not because they think that the border wall is actually going to change migration, but it's what it represents. The border wall is a symbol of that identity. It's a symbol of a bigger set of ideals that I am who I am, and I'm trying to hold firm to the things that I hold dear. And I see outsiders threatening to challenge some idea I have about how the world ought to work. And this is one place where both liberals and conservatives actually agree. I think Chuck Schumer, the senator from New York, was quoted once saying that the border wall itself is not really the thing we care about. And it's not about the money. It's what it represents. It's a symbol for both liberals and conservatives where their values are in direct conflict. Conservatives want to set a boundary against things that threaten the world that they imagine always existed and is now being eroded. And for liberals, building a border wall is anathema to the value that we are a pluralistic, diverse society where we are all humans first, and you cannot be declared an illegal person. Every person has a right to exist. And this is where liberal and, and conservative views differ wildly. And where there's no economic self-interest, there's often no uh, political will to go and intervene on the behalf of human beings. So in the next section, I'm going to let that same speaker talk a little bit more about other kinds of conservatism. And then I'm going to transition over to snippets of different types of theologies that compete with each other in the United States in 2019. No matter how much a conservative believes in earning one's place, they have always in the back of their mind an image of what society should look like. This country has not reconciled its race problem. When black girls and boys say, this is because you see me differently, there's this denial that there is anything wrong. White men want to believe that these billionaires earned their station, and not that their gender or race got them preferential treatment, because that would imply their own treatment may have also been biased in their favor. The historical trauma associated with race and discussions about racism in this country affects us all. And because we haven't had these kinds of conversations, we try to bury them. 
You have to confront these notions, confront these constructs, fully engage in this conversation, not just about Black girlhood and Black identities. We also have to have conversations about constructs of whiteness. What does that mean? Why does it have power in this society? And there's a real anxiety that liberals want to make room for those people in the middle by putting conservatives at the bottom, and that those people will treat conservatives the way conservatives treated them. Freedom, respect, and empathy are looked on as finite resources in a competitive market, just like jobs and scholarships. Because it's part of how we build a society that is going to have legitimate relationships. But today, I want us to promise that this congregation will provide sanctuary to all who are vulnerable and oppressed by the incoming administration. We will provide sanctuary for them. We are here for you. We are here for one another. Sanctuary. They will never be on board with aiding the poor in any systemic way and will instead champion charity and crowdfunding because minnows getting to eat should always be framed as a gift rather than a right. So these little sound bites from conservative and liberal viewpoints revolve around two of many different types of theologies. And I want to bring in the religious underpinnings of the left and the right. In one case, I would say the gospel of prosperity is a dominant idea. And in the other case, it's liberation theology. As Russell Conwell, he's one of the earlier prosperity gospel preachers, says in his Acres of Diamonds speech, I say you ought to get rich, and it is our duty to get rich. The men who get rich may be the most honest men you'll find in the community. That is why they are rich. Money is power, and you ought to be reasonably ambitious to have it. While we should sympathize with God's poor, let us remember that there is not a poor person in the United States who is not made poor by his own shortcomings. This theology is alive and well in secular America, justifying my relative wealth because, well, I deserve it. They all claim the same thing. As a Christian, you have the personal power to recreate life's reality into exactly what you want it to be. And they do it in the name of Jesus. Where does this come from? This is a false kind of Christianity. They hide the true God from the eyes of their followers, and they put in his place an idol of their own making with the same God. And that is John MacArthur. Joel Osteen is a good example of what it means to preach the gospel of prosperity today. And here are some excerpts from his sermons. Yes, we should thank God that our needs are supplied. We should be grateful that we have enough, but don't settle there. That's not your destiny. He is a more than enough God. He wants you to have an abundance so you can be a blessing to those around you. We're praying to pay our bills. God's planning on blessing you so you can pay other people's bills. What's on the inside is more powerful than anything on the outside. You keep doing the right thing despite the problem, despite the trouble, despite the betrayal. And one day you'll see like Joseph, God will begin to connect the dots. God will take you to your throne, so to speak. 
The contradictions in the gospel of prosperity become apparent when there's a crisis. A few years ago, Hurricane Harvey hit Houston, and the largest megachurch in America, his church, was asked to open their doors to hurricane survivors, and they didn't. Instead, he told them to pray and ask God for help. And in the other case, liberation theology. The idea that the whole of Jesus' story and the Bible and the teachings of Christianity are a blueprint for how people can liberate their lives from economic oppression and denial of rights in this world as well. It might surprise you to discover that one of the great voices of liberation theology is not a preacher at all, but Franklin Delano Roosevelt. If you listen to him talk about the ideal of America, you'll hear the same foundation for those views that you would find in liberation theology, as David Miller illustrates in his sermon. In the midst of the Great Depression, the second inaugural address of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who addressed the nation and said this, In this nation I see tens of millions of its citizens, a substantial part of its whole population, who are at this very moment denied the greater part of what the very lowest standards of today call the necessities of life. I see millions of families trying to live on income so meager that the pall of family disaster hangs over them day by day. I see millions whose daily lives in city and on farm continue under conditions labeled indecent by so-called polite society half a century ago. I see millions denied education, recreation, and the opportunity to better their lot and the lot of their children. I see one-third of a nation ill-housed, ill-clad, ill-nourished. It is not in despair that I paint you that picture. I paint it for you in hope, because the nation, seeing and understanding the injustice in it, proposes to paint it out. We are determined to make every American citizen the subject of this country's interest and concern, and we will never regard any faithful law-abiding group within our borders as superfluous. The test of our progress is not whether we add more to the abundance of those who have much. It is whether we provide enough for those who have too little. It is a lesson that is not part of our public discourse. And I fear that we are, we are being squeezed into a mold, a mold that says, be fearful, look out for yourselves, and the church, as much as any other place, is drinking in that fear. FDR railed against the prosperity gospel, and you can hear in his speeches setting up this dichotomy between the people who were pushing the prosperity gospel and his own view, the liberation theology, that we are all in this together. And he made manifest many of the ideas about how social justice and economic justice can become a reality for people in addition to living a moral life. And both the gospel of prosperity and liberation theology stretch and extend the original story of Jesus in ways that suit their own ends that are very secular. And that's something that you always have to wrestle with. But in the Living Prophets podcast, this is a search for living prophecy. It's a dialogue about having a spiritual activism as part of our daily lives. And so I'm comfortable taking Christianity and those teachings and stretching them into ways that affect what you do as an activist. 
That's my purpose here. So getting back to the original story for this episode, the chasm at the border is a chasm between two worldviews. One that puts our own prosperity ahead of others, and another that humanizes people wherever they are. And the fight over the border wall cuts to the heart of who we are as a nation, and as a people, and as spiritual beings. I just wish when people were fighting against the border wall in their rhetoric that they would look back to FDR and connect what we're talking about today back to the New Deal and what we were talking about 60, 70 years ago and make it about who we are as Americans and as spiritual beings and less about who Trump is and what he's fighting for. Thank you. This has been another episode. All of the content about how conservatives see the world comes from the alt-right playbook, Always a Bigger Fish, by Innuendo Studios on YouTube. Please like us on iTunes and rate us and tell your friends about this. See you in a few weeks. Mm -hmm.